We've been doing this series on Matthew for a long time and um, I decided to take a break from it this week um, partly because there are a couple of repetitive passages that I was put down for and I amalgamated that into one week but also what I've realised is we have got in the church an increasing number of people who are new to the Christian faith people are giving their lives to Christ and, and we assume that people know what's going on when we do things like take communion. And also, it's not something we often preach on. We just sort of mention the passages and we take communion. Now, by way of a confession, I gave my life to Christ on the 22nd of April, 1990, at approximately 12 minutes past seven. I can remember the moment quite well, as you can imagine. But I didn't understand what communion was for a few years because we just sort of took it and I just thought that's what you did. I mean, I knew it was about the, the, the death, the life, death and resurrection of Christ and it was about the cross and his body broken, his blood shed. But I didn't understand the totality of it, exactly what it meant and how powerful it was when we take communion. And I do know that we've got a whole bunch of people here who have not heard a sermon or any teaching on communion and there'll be a whole load of us here in the church that could probably do with something of a refresher. So what I wanted to do was talk about the why, the what and the how of communion. And some of these things are going to be very straightforward and some um, maybe we're going to go into a little bit of detail. But basically, Jesus said this, John 6, 47 to 51. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. I was actually with an African missionary once. Um, it was a missionary to the UK from Africa. There was a time when we used to send the missionaries to Africa. Now they've seen our need and they're all coming over here. And um, I took this African missionary to a curry house. I thought, take him for a traditional English dinner. So we go out for a chicken tikka biryani. And the waiter asked if he wanted naan. And the African missionary said, I already have the bread of life. And started to preach the gospel. I thought, oh no. But it was actually quite good. Because he did. But if you know Jesus, if you know Jesus, first thing to say here, is you have everlasting life. The decision you made for Jesus affected where you're going to be 10,000 years from now. How crazy is that? Has eternal consequences. Then he said this, your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. And Jesus said, I am living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. That's amazing. There's such power in communion. few reasons why we do it. Number one, we do it to remember. Luke 22, 19 to 20, Jesus took bread, the Bible says, broke it, gave it to them. This is Last Supper. He gathered all his disciples together. They probably didn't have, a, they didn't have an understanding of everything that was about to happen. This is the Lord with his guys in the last moments of his life. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. 
which is poured out for you. And when people go out for dinner, they raise a glass and they say cheers. Well, you should do anyway. It's kind of cool, isn't it? Or prost, or whatever you want to say. Christians, my mates, when I get together with my prayer accountability group, um, once a quarter for a meal, we might order a bottle of Sauvignon or something, or a cheeky Shiraz. My mates, when we pour a glass, we don't say cheers. Do you know what we say? We say, till he comes. I kind of like that. It's our tradition. We sit on the table and we go, till he comes, boys. We spent a whole afternoon praying together. Then we have a lovely meal. And actually, what we're doing when we're having our lovely meal is communion, uh, which I'll come on to explain in just a bit. But as simple as this, we raise a glass when we break bread and we remember and we eat the bread, which is symbolic. Now, for those of you that are new to the Christian faith, I want to clear up some confusion. The Catholic Church, and I think it's right to address these things, the Catholic Church believes in something called transubstantiation, which means the wine and the bread, although it doesn't change appearance, and this is actually written in Catholic doctrine, actually physically becomes the flesh and the blood of Jesus. They actually believe it physically becomes that. And actually, just for those of you who like Bible history, I know there's one or two here that do. When Henry VIII split from Rome because he wanted to divorce Catherine of Aragon. Sorry if this is boring for some of you, but I know some of you love this stuff. When Henry VIII wanted to divorce Catherine of Aragon, he split from Rome and created the Church of England. But even then, he still stuck with transubstantiation and still held that actually the bread and the wine, when you take it, this ordinary bread, when it's prayed over by a priest and becomes consecrated, they would say that this, I'll keep this bit for myself now because you have my fingers all over it, dear. I'll have this for later. That this, this piece of bread actually becomes flesh. We do not believe that. Right, now, and now, now, some of you here have been Christians for 20,000 years. And you know that. But some of you here have not been Christians for very long. And as I've said to you over repeated weeks, on Sundays you need to teach wide enough for everybody and deep enough for everybody. And sometimes you just need to go over the basics. This does not become the flesh of Jesus. And whilst it's symbolic, it still has huge power when we do it, which again I'm going to come on to explain. Does anyone here know who actually, because Henry VIII, he used to like burn people if they said this didn't become the flesh. So they were a proper roundup about it, obviously. But does anyone here know who reversed that decision? Come on, Bible scholars, or students of history. Nope. Go to your Bible college. It's Elizabeth I, brother. It's actually Elizabeth I. And actually, she was a proper God-fearing woman, by all accounts. And she, and she actually made a statement saying, we must adhere to what the Bible plainly teaches. Um, so it's Elizabeth I who does that. But anyway, first thing we do is we remember. And actually, there should be, I think, both joy when we take communion because of the victory of Jesus, which we'll come on to in a moment, but also it's appropriate, I think, to have moments of almost like, not, not like a, a, a sullenness, but like an honouring solemnity, I think. Now, 
And we just need to teach this because unless you're taught it, you don't know. Because actually, we're remembering that God, God gave his son, nailed to a cross, beaten up for us, sat at the Last Supper with his mates and one who betrayed him. Could have said no, but still went through with it. And the price that was paid means that you sit here today free, redeemed, saved, justified, which I'll explain in just a moment. I think that means that when we take communion, we do the communion in a particular way here, there can be a beautiful moment where we actually stand and pray together. Or we even look at each other and say, till he comes. Thank God for Jesus. And, you know, there's joy too. But also I do think there's something about honour that I wouldn't want this church to lose. So I think it's so important. I think even sometimes, just when we're, before we take bread and wine, maybe just a moment where we thank God for where we're at today. You know, again, without wanting to labour the point too much, because we are British, aren't we? Most of us here, and um, not all of us. Most of us here are British, which means we don't display emotion unless it's football, which I hate. I hate football. But I hate that only people display emotion at football and gigs. But actually, the fact that Jesus died for you and you sit here, loved by God, should put something of a little smile on a British person's face, shouldn't it? When we hear of people being saved, you know, maybe a little spark of joy or someone's life being transformed, so I think there's joy in remembering, but there's also a sense of honour. I wish I could blend the exuberance of Africa and India and our South African friends and, and blend all that into a kingdom culture. Maybe that's what we're meant to have. And our Derbyshire, well, I'm from Essex. We're proper grumpy about everything all the time. But um, um, I think a kingdom culture, there's, there's joy in remembering too. But there's also an honour and solemnity. Second thing, communion has power power. When we break bread, we remember and we declare that the work of Satan is completely destroyed as a church. That's what we're doing. Now the Bible says that Satan is ruler of this world. It says it in John 12, 31. He's ruler of this world. And we know that Satan is also on the prowl. He's on the attack. And his, his method of warfare is guerrilla warfare. He's, he doesn't believe in a straight fight. What he likes to do is creep up on people and attack them when their guards down. Or That's why the Bible says to put on the armour of God. But here is the amazing thing. The Bible also says in Colossians 1.13 that he has delivered you. So if you give your life to Christ, even though Satan is the ruler of this world, the Bible says... He's delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So although Satan's ruled this world, you've been set free from that. If you persist in your faith and if you like, keep yourself full of God's spirit and you keep yourself in the word and you're bearing fruit, the shed blood that we remember when we take the cup and the broken body when we take a little cube of bread, the death on the cross, and the resurrection of Christ utterly changed the game. And, and that is where we start celebrating. Because if the enemy's attacking you, 
And so many times he could say, oh, the devil's really having a go at me. I hear that a lot. Now, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, not criticising that per se, but I do hear criticism. Oh, you know, my washing machine broke down. It was the devil. Well, it might have been, but I think it's more strategic than that, personally. And I think the enemy likes to wear us down. But I think his assault is far more vigorous than that. But if your life is in Christ, if you say the devil's attacked me, when your washing machine's broken, I think you're giving him too much credit because you've been removed from the power of darkness. And I do think we've got to start living in that. I have to catch myself in it. My flight was delayed. My flight from Glasgow, I got proper bitter because I was sitting in a pub called Moorbeard. And it was horrible. <laughs> and, and, and I couldn't even have a cheeky beer because I had to drive when I got back. And I didn't know what time the flight was going to be. And so I was like, I was drinking this horrible lime and soda. And, and, and I was watching all these drunk people being pulled off planes constantly. And I was just getting really, and I was with my mate, Steve, who's my ops director at CVM. And we both moaned at each other like mad. And then, and then I nearly said it. I nearly said, it's the devil. And of course it's not. It was just Jet 2 with a dodgy plane. I don't, I don't think the devil conspired to delay me from Glasgow because he knew I had a 5.59 train in the morning. I don't think it was anything to do with that. I think it was just life. But I've made a choice. I have. I don't see the devil in everything. Even if he might be because I don't want to give him too much credit. But I believe that the light of Christ shines on my life. I believe that his glory goes before me and behind me, because the Bible says it. It says, it, like in Isaiah, Isaiah 58, that the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard, if you keep his commands. So what I'm saying is, when we break bread, we are not just remembering, which is what most churches get stuck at. We're remembering, but also we're declaring are you, are you with me on it? We're declaring that the forces of darkness have been destroyed. And that actually should lift our gaze a little bit, I think. I think Christians, without being overly triumphant, which means we'd lack humility, should be living in the power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ a little bit more. Understanding that the devil's work was defeated on the cross. And you are actually saved. And there is a way made through for you. And God's got you. And he'll, he'll see you through, even if you don't feel like it. And that's been my experience. You know, if, you, if you're walking in faith, God will see you through. Don't give him too much credit. Isaiah 53. Let's, let's just look at the power of the cross. Um, Isaiah 53 gives a brilliant account of what we might call the great exchange. It, it, it's called that because when Jesus died, he bore the punishment for us. There is a transfer that took place. It says this, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. So Jesus carried your sorrow when he got nailed to a cross. And yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And then it says, By his scourging, or I think in the NIV, you might say, by his wounds we are healed. Each of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Actually says there's an exchange. 
And Jesus died on the cross. Your sorrow, your sin, and sickness. Actually, the Bible says, it's not me saying it, it's what the Bible says, was poured onto him. He took it all. Maybe that's why he died quickly. Bore the sin of the world. I mean, imagine that. All the sin you committed and all the sin you're going to go on to commit dealt with on the cross. He was absolutely pummeled with it. This is why when people give their lives to Christ, people do sometimes experience healing because of the cross. The sickness was taken by him. Now, I think we live in the kingdom is now but not yet. That's why sometimes we do have a bit of a battle on our hands and people die and bad stuff happens. But it's also why people give their lives to Christ. Marriages get restored. It's not, it's not like, it's not self-help counselling. It's the power of Jesus because he transforms people's lives. It's why some of you are sitting here having experienced multiple second chances because of the power of the cross. It's why addicts get set free. People give their lives to Christ. There are people in our church who are addicted and gave their lives to Christ and it was broken almost instantly. Now, some people, it's a journey and we have to journey with that too. I remember hearing a story of two alcoholics. One alcoholic stood up and he said, the day I gave my life to Christ, I never wanted another drop of gin or vodka. And the other alcoholic stood up and said, the day I gave my life to Christ, I've wanted a drop of gin and vodka every single day, but God's given me the grace to not take it. It's interesting, isn't it? It's different for different people, but both things are the power of the cross. So when we take communion, you're remembering, but you're also declaring and you start to stand in victory. I believe, and we don't talk about it enough, probably because people think it's old school language, but there is huge power in the blood of Jesus. Like, like crazy power. Like there's songs that we, we need to bring it back. Where's Janet? The, the wonder working power in the blood of Jesus. What a great old school Pentecostal song. We need to sing it. Because we've got to bring that language back. Let's add it to the song list. Executive decision. Because there's power, when we take that cup, we're talking about the shed blood of Jesus. I mean, honestly, I remember once praying with a young girl called Ali. Years ago, Karen and I, she had chronic ME. Now, I'm not saying when I say things like this, all ME is like this, but she had chronic ME. She was stuck in her house, she's walking with sticks, beautiful young girl. And one time, she, I mean, she had to like almost be helped around. She came to our youth group and um, we were talking about the cross, the power of the cross. And Karen said, why don't we pray with you, Ali? And, and we, my study at the time was this little attic room. We had to get up three flights of stairs. I don't know why we didn't just pray with in the lounge in there, actually. That's a bit weird thinking back. Anyway, we took her up to the attic room. And when we started praying... Felt it. I just felt this phrase. I just said, I plead the blood of Jesus over you, Ali. By the wounds of Christ, you're healed. Plead the blood of Jesus. And then I said, Enemy, Ali's been washed clean by the blood of Jesus, which is a hard expression for people to understand. But our life is now in Christ. And do you know what? In 15 minutes of that prayer, she was fully healed. I'm fully healed. I was sitting on my sofa and on the plane and in the airport for hours thinking about this sermon with me lime soda. 
And I was thinking back of all the people over the years that Karen and I have seen healed, marriages restored, even cancers or, or debt issues. And when you start, people's lives start coming under the power of the blood of Jesus, the game changes completely. But Christians don't live in the power of it or the understanding of it. And I think we've got to somehow try and get that back in our language because I think it's massively important. At risk of boring everyone, I actually compiled a little paper which I could email around. But these, I, I, I printed out all the verses and explanations of the blood of Jesus. I mean, can I read some of them? I mean, I hope you like it. I mean, if it's boring, you know, look on YouTube or something else. Here we go. The blood of Jesus, your debt's paid once and for all. Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Your debt's paid. We're forgiven. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1.7 You're spared from God's anger because of the blood. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we should be saved more from God's anger. Romans 5.9 You're being spiritually healed. Spiritually healed and physically healed potentially. 1 Peter 2.24 Who himself bore our sins on his own body on the tree that we having died to sin might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. You've been made, you've been made by the blood of Jesus, spiritually alive. Jesus said to them, more assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That's why we take communion. Like some people don't go to church when it's communion. Oh, I don't like the way we do communion. So it says here, if you don't, if you don't partake in it, there's no life in you. That's amazing. Your judgment has been satisfied and you're at peace with God. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for iniquities. The chastisement for your peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. You've been cleansed. If you walk in, a, it says here in, in John 1.7, if you walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses you from all sin. It says in Revelation 12, 11, you've got power to overcome the enemy. It says in Galatians 3, 13, you're not under the curse of the law. It says in Ephesians 1, 7, you've been reclaimed from the enemy. It says in Colossians 2, by all by the blood of Jesus, you've been moved from the enemy's kingdom into the kingdom of God. It says in Ephesians 1, 7, that you've gained the unmerited favour of God. There's nothing you could have done, but by the blood of Jesus, you got it. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, you have been declared righteous. You might not feel very righteous this morning, but you've been declared righteous. It says in Romans 3, 24 to 25, that you've been justified freely by his grace. If you want to know what justified means, it means you are living as though you've never sinned. You, God looks at you and sees Jesus when you bring your life in front of him. Someone might need to know that this morning. You might feel so weighed down by what's going on in your life. You think life's put you on the shelf. Or that God would never love you. But it actually says in my Bible that you've been justified. Declared righteous. Means in Ephesians 2.13 you can come close to God. You can participate in communion. Your redemption will never perish. 
Jesus testifies in Revelation 1.5 that you've been made clean. It says in Galatians 5.1 that you're free. It says in Romans 8.1 you're no longer condemned. Christians condemn themselves. God doesn't. Give your life to Christ. He set you free from condemnation. At this point, although I'm reading a mighty list, you should be listening to this saying, that is amazing. Because this is all amazing. Like it, it totally changes your life when you understand this. It says in Galatians 2.20 that you've been separated from the world and declared holy. Remember that next time you're sneaking into the bookies. <laughs> it says in Revelation 12.11 that you can proclaim total victory and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. They love not their lives unto the death. It says you can enter boldly into the holiest of holies and live means you can draw close to God. Did you know, in olden times, in Old Testament priestly times, they used to tie a rope around the priest's leg before he went into the Holy of Holies in case he got struck down by the power of God and had to drag his corpse out. Proper true, that is. They're like, who should we nominate today? Oh, let's get Colin. Let's, let's get Steve. Oh, Peter. Peter, tie a rope around his leg. Send him in. Well, Oh, he's not moving. Drag his body out. He's been struck down by God. And that's why when Jesus died and rose again, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. We're not separated from God anymore. You can draw close to him. Was it Chris Barnes who prayed earlier? And he's not in the room. He prayed some mighty prayer before the service about. He said, thank you, we don't talk at you. We can talk with you, God. That's because of the blood of Jesus. I hope you understand that when we take communion in a moment, we're all going to be like, this is amazing. So carry on. I quite like my list. It took me ages. So you're going to get the whole thing. Oh, Move on. The blood of Jesus is power. I mean, life is going to conspire against you. You're going to worry about debt. You're going to worry about your health. You're going to worry about your kids. You're going to crash the car. I'm not proclaiming that as a prophecy. I'm not cursing you. It's going to happen. You know, you're going to drop a plate. The dishwasher's going to blow up if you've got one. Things are going to go wrong. Don't say it's the devil. You'll know when it is. Oh, you'll know when it is. But when these things go wrong, when life is conspiring against you, just life, remember what I said. You can just stand there, you know. Put yourself in the corner. Give yourself a little godly talking to. I've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. I'm going to heaven one day. I'm going to spend eternity with all my friends and family at Redeemer King. Remember, you've been set free, justified, healed, rescued. When you take communion, it's powerful. Next point, as part of the what and not the why. You've got to be in right relationship though when you take communion in a moment. Right relationship with God, but also right relationship with one another. 1 Corinthians 11, 28 to 30. Everyone ought to examine themselves for they eat of the bed and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. And this is why many among you are weak and ill, and a number of you have fallen asleep. That doesn't mean like some of you are falling asleep right now. That means dead. It means that some people are taking communion with a bad attitude or out of fellowship with each other or in sin. And they, they, they died. Now, that may have been a special circumstance because I'm, I'm not aware of anyone who's dropped dead, a Redeemer King. 
by taking communion in a bad way. But I think that Paul, when he wrote that, and the Holy Spirit was trying to say to us, make sure when you take communion, at least at that moment of taking communion, your life is right with God. So if there's things going on, when we have a little pause, a little quiet, say, Lord, I bring my life afresh before you. You forgive me. Prayers of repentance. I'm not going to go that way again. And God, God's grace will be with you. You, know, you, you, you can take communion if you, if you bring your life afresh before God, even in these moments. But I also want to say that I think we need to be in good community and communion with one another. Don't take communion if you're chipped up with someone else in the church before you deal with it in your heart. Now, let me, let me pick what I mean is this. Let's say that me and Janet, and I can say this because we got on really, really well and we're friends. Um, me and Janet actually like, are really chipped up with each other because something I said or did, and she's annoyed with me. And, um, but we pretend like there's nothing going on when we come to church. And then we're taking communion together as family. Aim right. Clear the air. At least in your own heart. But what, the, the, the way you do that is not to go over to like, if this is me and Janet, not for me to go to Janet and say, I just want you to know that I've forgiven you for being an absolute idiot. It's, it's, not, it's not where you clear the air. Um, do it in your own heart and then treat that person like a sister or brother in Christ is the much better way to do it. Um, but keep short accounts with God. If you want to keep God close, keep short accounts with him. And be in right relationship with the Lord. Four, we're communing with God and each other when we take communion. I don't believe it's an individual act. There's a reason why we take communion the way we do. And we do it at the gathering and other things that I lead. Because there's a huge community aspect to this. Acts 2, 42 to 44, classic verses. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And this is where it gets a bit sticky. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. There's a word in the Greek called koinonia, which means commonness and communion. And it's used uh, for fellowship as well. Now, in the early church, they, they basically lived in communion with one another in a very deep and intentional way. I've got two cars. That person hasn't got a car. Well, he didn't have cars back then. You get He's got two horses. He hasn't got a horse. I'll, I'll give the person a horse. Fussy equipment would be a car. Well, that person's without, you know, I'll, I'll spread the love. So no one was without because it wasn't just symbolic. They were properly communing together. That's why when we do communion, there's one way to try and express that. We get you to come down or take the bread and cup and stand with people. Now, it can take some getting used to. But the reason we do it is we're not just communing with God vertically. Uh, we're also communing with each other horizontally. But if we're truly being community, I think for us, we've got to work out what that means very radically. We had a little go at this. We're trying to set this thing up called list so people could share possessions and stuff, which you need to get off the ground once. Rich Holder started as operations manager. He'd be on, his, on the top of his list. Um, there you go, make a note. So 
I said I wouldn't do that earlier, didn't I? Uh, anyway, um, forget what I just said. Um, but we've got to work out what it means to live in community. So there's no need amongst us. And when we take bread and wine together as family, um, there's an honesty about that and an integrity. And I'll finish by saying this before we break bread now. Um, in the early church, and we get this example from 1 Corinthians 11, um, it all went pear-shaped. So when a church was founded, everyone had possessions in common, they lived in community, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, shared their possessions. I mean, it seems so radical and beautiful. And people were being added to their number daily because they saw what was going on. By the time Paul had planted a church in Corinth, um, basically, um, like the rich and poor were divided and everything was going pear-shaped. So I'm going to read this passage out to you because it's a little bit of a warning. In the following directives, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Oh, imagine that. I hope our meetings don't do that. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. Because they would have communion as a meal. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. I mean, they were taking communion. I mean, it would turn into a feast for the rich and, and a bit of um, wine bibbing for some others. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What then shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. And so it goes on. It says here, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks a cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves while they eat the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ drink judgment on themselves, which I read earlier. It actually goes on to say, um, so then my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who's hungry should eat something at home. Because they're some people were feasting and other people were eating cream crackers while the rich were eating the roast chicken. Now, obviously, we don't do communion like that. But what he's saying is this, be in good fellowship, share your possessions, love one another. Let's be a church that you know, blesses those who have less. Let's be super generous because when we take that and we say we're family, well, it's hypocrisy if you actually don't live it out, isn't it? Honest, I'm just being honest. And I think the church, big capital C, has got some reappraising to do in the way it does community. We've got to constantly challenge our lives in that regard. So we remember as power, the work of the enemies and defeated, the blood of Jesus when we drink from that cup, has more power than we can probably comprehend as Christians. But we're also doing it as community, as family, which is why we like to gather together. So we're going to pause now and we're going to break bread. But here's what I'd love us to do this time.
when you come and get the bread and the cup, maybe go and see someone you've not spoken to before in the church. You know, cross the room. Be family. It's a challenge. Maybe break bread with someone who's not like you. You know, that could be as simple as if you're from Derbyshire, come and break it with an Essex boy. Let's mix up social demographics, understandings, behaviours, occupations. Let's be radical family. And I, I tell you, I think when you start to get that right, we, we, we do the things I've listed, I think it gets God's attention. I think it gets his smile because we're properly living out what was intended, what this communion meal was meant to be. So let's pray.